Hey, what do you study? I study the ethnography of religion. Religion in the Caribbean and the American South. I study acts of identification and social formation. I study contemporary religious identity in India. Theism, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and Holocaust and genocide. History of the field and the politics of classification. The philosophy of religion and the intersection of development studies and religious studies. Religion and popular culture and religious texts. What do you study? Welcome to Study Religion, the podcast of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. I'm your host, Professor Mike Altman. And on this episode, we're going to talk about guests. Yes, visitors, those that come in from the outside. Um, there's a, I think every department can benefit um, from having people uh, visit and bring new ideas and new uh, experiences into a department. And we have two uh, regularized occasions for guests to come visit, two lecture series, the Zachary Day lecture and the Aronov lecture that happen every year, um, usually one in the spring and one in the fall. But this year we were um, ended up having them both happen this past spring. Um, and I want to bring you uh, clips of those lectures and a conversation with a guest um, about the state of the field and our department and the future of religious studies and technology and all sorts of stuff. So our first guest that we had this spring was actually an old friend of mine, um, Dr. Elijah Siegler, who uh, is a professor at the College of Charleston and was one of my professors when I was in college. I graduated from the College of Charleston um, and actually that's where I discovered religious studies and now here I am with a podcast about it. And uh, and Dr. Siegler came as part of our, uh, as a day lecturer and gave a very um, interesting lecture about religion and film, particularly with um, the works of the Coen brothers who have produced films um, such as True Grit, uh, The Big Lebowski, Burn After Reading, Raising Arizona, so many great films. Um, and so what... Uh, what I want to do is play you a compressed segment of uh, Dr. Siegler's lecture because it was it was really fascinating to look at the way we think about religion and film or religion in film and the consequences of how we choose to define those things. Um, and then he how he used some examples uh, from his uh, readings uh, of these films by the Coen brothers uh, as examples for this. Take a listen. I'm going to talk about the films of the Coen brothers. This talk kind of generally fits into the academic subfield, this growing academic subfield called religion and film. I'll talk briefly about what we mean by that, religion and film, including some methodological issues. Religion and film is a growing subfield in the academic study of religion. There are new books published all the time. There are more classes and more universities offered each year on the theme of religion and film. And there are many ways to approach the subject of religion and film and which approach one takes depends on how you define these terms. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the term uh, religion and the term film. Um, so 
let's start with film, okay? How do you define the word film? Pretty easy, I, I mean, maybe not so easy anymore with there's so many different platforms for, for viewing, but I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy and I take kind of an old-fashioned approach to, to movies and I think of movies as a feature film, so let's say 90, mo 90 minutes or longer. But in terms of the viewing experience, um, I think that it's a, b a benefit to students to sit together in a dark room and watch on as big a screen as possible a full-length movie and then later discuss it. With popular culture, maybe you're watching it on your phone or whatever and that's fine, but there's something to be said for that, that cinematic experience. So now let's um, define uh, religion. Well, that's easy, right? We all know what religion is. Uh, but no, but seriously, I mean, as the famous scholar said, religion is our term to define, right? So when I use the word religion in a class like religion and film, I'm, I'm not taking an essentialist definition of religion. Religion isn't any particular essence, but kind of a common sense definition um, in the way that things might be considered religious by filmmakers or also by film watchers. What might they see? And so just as kind of an arbitrary workable definition, you might, you, know, you might see these different things in film and they might all be considered religious to you. So that's all I kind of mean by that. So you need to take, when you're studying something like religion and film or religion and popular culture, you need to take a broad definition of religion, but you don't want to be too broad because if everything is religion, then nothing is. If you just simply work to, if religion is simply meaning, it's just like, oh, this is something serious or, or take, worth taking notice of uh, or thoughtfulness, um, then you've kind of lost something specific about what religion is. Because I think there are a lot of great filmmakers out there who make very meaningful films of very high quality who don't seem to be particularly interested in myth at all, widely conceived, or morality at all. They don't seem to have a kind of religious interest, which is fine. I mean, that's not to criticize them. I'm thinking of you know, people like Wes Anderson, one of my favorite filmmakers, but not necessarily one I, I would consider to have a, a kind of religious sensibility. Um, some filmmakers, I would say, are, are kind of anti-religious, and I actually wrote about that a couple years ago in, in an article about the great Canadian auteur David Cronenberg, who's kind of very explicitly anti-religious. Certainly there's a relationship being posited when you're talking about religion and film. There's a, there's a kind of relationship. And I'm going to, again, just kind of arbitrarily argue that there are maybe three common relationships that the word and can do in religion and film. How is religion represented in film? You know, there are many, many films where there's uh, Jesus figures in film, right, which you can say there's, there's an example of religion in film. Um, how are, for example, Muslims represented in American film? Spoiler alert, not that well, usually not very accurately, right? But those are the kinds of questions that you can ask when you're studying religion in film. But maybe the and means is. Maybe that and is talking about religion is film. And here you're really getting kind of deeper because you're talking about the metaphysics or the theology of film style. Another way that religion is film works is by looking at that definition of mythology. Mythology is film, right? And if you see mythology as revealing the cultural values, the, the power structures of a given society, it creates meaningful worlds for us to inhabit. It teaches and questions morality. If you look at that's the that's what mythology does. And it's quite easy to see film as kind of the most powerful form of modern mythology. And then I would say the third definition that the word and can do here in religion and film is to kind of switch it around and look at film as religion. And here I would 
look, I would, I would ask you to look at the cinematic experience itself, the experience of going into a darkened room with deep red curtains, sitting in silence, having a stirring experience, could be going to a cathedral, or you could be going to see a film. Or think about um, people who are so fanatical about certain films, people who are Star Wars fans or Harry Potter fans, that it becomes a religion for them. In this case, film kind of functions um, as a religion, and this kind of lends itself very well to a, you know, a kind of Durkheimian analysis, a sociological analysis of how a religion functions uh, to create community and so forth. So those are the three definitions. All right, I'm going to look at all three de definitions. I'll focus more on one than the other two, as you'll see. So for those of you who aren't familiar, who are the Kahn brothers? There's those guys. So they are two skinny bearded guys from Minnesota. Joel was born in 1954, and Ethan was born three years later. And they write and direct and produce and even edit their own films. They edit under the pseudonym Roderick Janes. Um, in a 32-year period from their first feature film, Blood Simple, in 1984, to their most recent feature film, Hail Caesar, in 2006, they have given us 17 films. And I would argue that all but one or two of them are eminently watchable and endlessly rewatchable. Many of these films are among the best American films of all time, I would say. So their films get a lot of... Um, a lot of analysis. There's a lot of critical analysis of their films. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of darlings of film critics, even though their films don't always do that well at the box office. But their films are not usually seen as religious, particularly. There's not a lot of work on kind of the religious aspect in the films of the Coen brothers. For years, really, there was debate whether the Coen brothers had any kind of serious background or interest in religion at all. I mean, certainly it was there in their movies. But was religion just one more element in their ironic postmodern mix of genres, American folklore, and popular culture? But with their 14th and 15th films, which were released one year apart, I believe the Coens tipped their hand. The Coens offered us this film, True Grit, a remake of the famous John Wayne Western. And critics generally found it light and accessible. I mean, some critics even called it un-Cohen-like. Um, and the fact that the film was their biggest box office hit to date, um, and it starred you know, Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, uh, it seemed to confirm that this was kind of you know, a lighter film. Uh, but some critics, maybe more attuned to religious matters, noticed how central the Calvinist idea of God's grace featured in the movie's dialogue, soundtrack, and visual grammar. It became possible, even necessary, to read back to the beginning of the Cohen's filmography and to see their films as seriously religious all along. I mean, did we really miss the, f the fact that their very first film, Blood Simple, uh, a kind of low-budget film noir, features Christian imagery, including light and fish and stigmata. And it features an apocalyptic sermon on, Christ on a Christian radio station in one of the scenes. Did we miss that the key to solving the puzzle film of Barton Fink may, in fact, be in the Bible? Or did we miss the fact that the Hudsucker Proxy wears its Dharmic influences on its sleeve? 
So again, if you're simply looking for the representation of religion, again, limiting oneself to the first definition we talked about, right? you'll find many obvious religious scenes in most of the Coen brothers' films. Right? A lot of their films contain references to the Bible, whether direct quotations or indirect allusions. At least three of their movies feature soundtracks filled with religious music. That's O oh Brother, Where Art Thou, The Lady Killers, and True Grit. Um, and even movies with little explicit religions might include subtle visual clues. Uh, for example, in the movie Inside Lewin Davis, the Upper West Side apartment of a married Jewish couple is decorated with a variety of menorahs, um, or perhaps character background. Let's skip ahead briefly to the third definition of religion, film as religion. The idea that, uh, the, that actually watching films and appreciating films can become a kind of modern form of religion. And here, the obvious example um, is The Big Lebowski, where the Coen brothers accidentally responsible for the biggest cult movie of the past uh, quarter century. And in fact, in a few days, we'll be at the 20th anniversary of, of Big Lebowski. So do yourself a favor, watch the movie, have, uh, have some refreshments. Um, the Big Lebowski has really inherited the mantle of the Rocky Horror Picture Show as the preeminent film in which screenings involve ritualized audience participation, right? Ritualized audience participation. But let me concentrate, go back to the second definition of religion. Religion is film, okay? Could the Cohen's increasingly impressive body of work actually be saying something consistent throughout their 17 films about what they consider or what audiences may consider to be the sacred, about morality, about mythology, about how we should live our lives? You know, some sort of basic religious questions. Um, unlike other American filmmakers to whom they might be compared, like Wes Anderson or Woody Allen, the Coens have never shot a film outside the U.S., with two notable short exceptions, a five-minute short um, for the anthology film Paris Je Thème, uh, which was shot in the Paris Metro, although it featured an American, um, and then a few uh, scenes of No Country for Old Men take place in right over the border in Mexico. But other than that, the Coen's movies are set in America and in very particular places. Santa Rosa, Hollywood, uh, Texas, Minnesota, Mississippi. What are they doing here? Um, I think they're tapping into the collective national imagination, which is another way of saying American mythology. But what kind of mythology, right? So they're set in particular eras kind of before things really get happening, before the 80s start or the 60s start or the 40s start. Um, and that to me suggests that the Coens eschew triumphalist myth set in the eras of past that are considered glorious. Um, the Coen brothers have never made, and probably will never make, uh, a movie about brave American soldiers and during World War II or plucky businessmen in the Great Depression, unless it's very ironic. Um, the heroes and Coen brothers are not masters of their time, but they're subject to larger forces beyond their control. The iconic line from No Country for Old Men, Sheriff Bell says, something's coming, referring to the brutal drug wars of the 1980s, but also the kind of free-floating American apocalypse. Cohen protagonists are at certain places in mythic times, betwixt and between, on the verge of something new that they cannot understand, control, or even escape, whether that be the incipient UFO craze in small town California in um, a man who wasn't there, the sexual revolution that has not quite hit suburban Minnesota, the New Deal's modernization of the, new, of the Deep South, Pearl Harbor, or the arrival of Bob Dylan on the New York folk scene. 
these unstoppable forces that these, the Coen brothers, mostly male protagonists, face speak to a larger issue, I think, a kind of a, a larger kind of mythological theme, and that is that Coen Brothers movies consistently question the mythology of masculinity. Let me give you some examples from several of their films. In a voiceover, Barton Fink reads a line from a script he is writing. If you were a man, a real man, dot, 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 Ulysses Everett McGill, an old brother, wants to be a bona fide paterfamilias, even as his estranged wife argues that he is not. The first line of True Grit, is that the man? And of course, in The Big Lebowski, the dude gets asked, what makes a man? One of the answers, maybe, to being a man and to acting morally is understanding. Understanding what's going on. Understanding your place in the world. So let me kind of end by asking the question, uh, is, all this every, is all my analysis here actually in the movie? I mean, probably some of you are thinking, am I just reading too much into it? Because that's kind of what I do. Um, is this really what the Coens meant themselves? Um, and there's a couple of possible answers to that. On the one hand, it doesn't really matter because the intentional, you know, want to avoid the creeping intentional fallacy, which is a faulty argument that a text can only mean what the author's intent. So it doesn't really matter what the Coens had in mind. It's what we as audience can get out of their movies. On the other hand, we can actually look at what the Coen brothers have said about their movies um, during their, their interviews and press tours. Um, some, I would argue, I mean, you know, to kind of argue the other side, to play the devil's advocate, in our desire to find a message in their movies beyond their immediate pleasures, maybe we're ignoring the best advice of the Coens themselves. Um, they once told a journalist, quote, none of our movies have messages. Do you see a moral in them? Um, I mean, to be honest, they're kind of famously dickish in interviews. You know, they kind of disavow, meaning they kind of just pretend to be uh, kind of just, just old-fashioned filmmakers, despite the fact that Joel has a degree in philosophy from Princeton and so forth. Um, or, or Ethan, rather, sorry. Joel has a um, film degree from NYU. Um, but so they're very disingenuous, in other words. We might ask whether the very way that religious study scholars look for the religious in the Coen Brothers movies, or more broadly the way that film critics look for meaning in general in them, is the same way that the Coen Brothers protagonists often are looking, sometimes futilely, for transcendence or for meaning. Is this actually what makes the Coen Brothers films religious in the first place? Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Elijah Siegler from the College of Charleston for what was just an excellent day lecture, another great lecture on religion and popular culture. But um, Dr. Siegler was not the only guest we had this semester. We were also um, had Linnell Cady from Arizona State University, who um, was our Aronov lecturer. And um, Professor Cady came and actually spent a, a lot of time uh, in the department and one of the things we did, we did a sort of roundtable discussion with some faculty members who were available and about the state of the field, changes in universities um, and higher education generally and graduate education and religious studies. Um, Professor Katie at Arizona State was part of a transition that happened there where the Department of Religious Studies was um, combined, merged with uh, 
history and philosophy into a larger school. And we talked about that. We talked about Arizona State's um, work with technology and online education. We talked about changes in the field more broadly in higher ed. And it was just a really good conversation. Now, it was recorded with one microphone on the table. So the content, the uh, quality of the recording isn't up to what we usually have, but the content level, I think, makes it really worthwhile. So I just want to turn this over to a discussion. You'll hear me opening it up, and then um, a couple of our faculty members, Nathan Lowen, uh, Ted Trost, uh, Stephen Ramey, uh, and Matt Bagger were there uh, as well. Uh, let's take a listen. To start with, I was curious, um, this is something Russell and I were talking about. So at Arizona State now, you are housed in this um, school of, I looked at it this, this morning, history, mm-hmm. what is it now, history, history something? History, philosophy, and religious studies. Okay, I was trying to get the order right. Yeah, um, alphabetical. Yeah. So, and I was, but I was, I was intrigued by the, um, so I looked at the homepage and that sort of, it frames itself as a trans humanity, is that the word? So I'm just curious, what, how did that unit come to be? How is it working in that kind of a unit yeah. versus a, a standalone department? Um. Well, it goes back. Uh, we were created as a school in, I think it was 2009, uh, and it was driven by two things. One is the president of ASU who came in 2002. His vision of uh, higher education is that it was too much broken up into departmental silos. And he really felt that uh, higher education, that's uh, really an old legacy of the 19th century and that it really needed to transform and areas of study needed to be far more integrated. So in other units, um, there had been some movement towards like the School of Life Sciences or the School of um, geological studies. I mean, there were some shifts that went on around the university, um, but in the humanities, uh, we were still pretty much the same old regular departments uh, until the financial crisis uh, hit, 2008 or nine, and that's when they decided uh, uh, to move forward with the school of our school. And at the time, I think there was great hope amongst the administration that the faculty would be able to come up with a name, a nifty name, that would somehow uh, reflect a more transdisciplinary humanities orientation. But everything that we proposed or that, you know, to each other um, didn't seem to work because just calling it humanities, the other humanities departments weren't going to let that pass because they were humanities too. And so it was not really clear what name would would work. Uh, And on top of that, uh, the faculty was very eager to maintain their own distinctive disciplinary identity because you all well know um, uh, a philosopher does not see him or herself as an historian, uh, let alone a scholar of religion, uh, so that these are not um, necessarily easy borders to uh, sort of uh, ignore. So the way it ended up was we kept our own name in the title, uh, also on the grounds that students needed to be able to find Hmm. where this kind of study was being done. Because ASU is, I mean, I know um, Alabama's gotten big, really big too, but there are 
I don't know, 40 or another 50 or 60 undergraduates on ground there. And so students wanting to find out where you, you study a certain thing, if you didn't have that name, you'd really be disadvantaged. So that was why we kept, it's, I mean, it's so cumbersome, it's ridiculous. But on the other hand, it faithfully honors the fact that there are three disciplines or at least fields, well, if you want to debate what we are, but it, that has been a good thing. I think, uh, for maintaining our own identities. You're also, you founded this center, I'm going to get it right, Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict. And religion and Conflict. Yes. So how did that, where did that come from? What was the, what's the sort of story behind its founding in Genesis? That was uh, when President Michael Crow came to ASU in 2002. He wanted to... Uh, do something if there was interest uh, to enhance what was going on in religious studies because uh, he recognized that uh, religion really had a lot of public salience. And I think prior to that, although we flourished as a department, um, there had not been a lot done to provide any kind of leverage or platform uh, for more than what we did within a departmental unit. And, you know, this was right after 9-11 and he felt uh, that religion and conflict was the issue uh, that was um, most significant and important to um, bring resources to bear on. So he invested um, um, each year money in, in developing a center for religion and conflict, and uh, I was appointed the director, and it was, a for me, a wonderful opportunity uh, to develop uh, the the uh, a center that brought together uh, the study of religion with all these other fields, uh, and so it was very much driven by uh, the directive to be a multidisciplinary center uh, and get faculty from across not just liberal arts and sciences but uh, other colleges as well uh, to uh, join together uh, um, in all sorts of different kinds of collaborations. And of course, there was this expectation that it would generate external funding because we, we were formed um, with the expectation of being a research center. Uh, and, but what we found was that it really was a, was a lot of, of interest uh, in funders uh, for all sorts of uh, projects having to do with uh, the study of religion with other areas. And, um, we're more familiar, I think, with programs such as, you know, the Ford Foundation or Luce Templeton, uh, which have been long-standing funders uh, in, in the humanities. The areas that we also were able to form uh, faculty collaborations, um, we received um, one initial grant was for a Minerva grant from the Department of Defense, which was a $5 million grant. Uh, and that then was um, parlayed after that into additional million dollar plus grants. And these were faculty working with um, people from, uh, well, it's international teams, but the, the, the core team at ASU was uh, a scholar of Islam, a couple of scholars of Islam working with a computer scientist who uh, does more um, data mining 
as well as someone from global studies. So it was it was really trying to bring together these people um, for much larger kinds of things. And, and this particular project they were doing was on exploring um, wasn't just um, it, multiple forms of Islam in across three different continents, both um, those prone to more jihadist orientations as well as those who were counter, explicitly counter um, to those movements. So trying to look at this dynamic within these different countries. So if I can ask, um, we've talked about you know, the moving of religious studies into a school mm -hmm. with other units, and you've retained some, as it were, disciplinary or departmental identity despite the merging into a school. Yeah. But now you're talking about grant work. Yeah. And, and in the in the former part, it sounds like you really don't have to play well with others. You can retain your departmental identity and not really seek collaborations across yeah. inside ASU. But now when you're talking about grant stuff, mm -hmm. and, and I think we had this conversation at breakfast, that playing with other people or working with other people outside your disciplinary boundaries is really important if you're going to get those big dollar grants. If you're going to get anything, yes. right? Even in $5,000 NEH grant yeah. now requires you to yes. be playing with other people. So how do you retain your departmental disciplinary identity and maintain your interests, but also have productive collaborations with people with whom might have other interests than yours, right? You yes. may be pulling two different sleds, but how do you get pulling the same sled in order to get a grant? What's the, what's the trick there? It's a, I mean, it's a really good question. All through ASU, the ethos over the last 15 years has shifted to excuse me, encouraging people to be collaborative. And the president uh, really, I think, has generated not just interest, but enthusiasm and buy-in on the part of much of the faculty that all areas really uh, are enhanced if they recognize that working together with other colleagues will be generative of their own intellectual work and the significance that uh, it, what it, it, it yields. And so this isn't wasn't just a directive for the center that I developed, but there are other units on campus where faculty really do feel this sense of um, commitment to working with others uh, on different kinds of projects. And so we developed a, over the years, uh, Institute for Humanities Research, for example, mm. that also tries to encourage faculty to work together on different kinds of projects. Um, but I think the lagging shift at ASU was that for, for years, the tenure and promotion criteria did not change relative to the ethos of collaboration so that and, and this is now a conversation that has become um, more uh, more visible and that things that people are doing that may not be the standard monograph but that may be more let's say public humanities or <laughs> public kind of um, collaborative work has to be recognized somehow and, and I would say that units are among the most conservative to change on this score. <laughs> Although uh, someone like the president can come and um, exhort everybody to, to move in this direction, it gets very difficult. Uh, because faculty feel that 
you know, their own reputations, uh, and, and, you know, and rightly so, are, are tied much more to the traditional uh, kinds of works. So it's difficult uh, to, to negotiate these expectations on the part of the different parties. Right, get a grant for something that's not going to move you through the TMP process. And that's why I, I think it's much, much harder at the pre-tenure stage. I think once you get tenure, you're much more uh, in, in a much better position. To get involved in, in these kinds of things, but by that time, the culture that's created yeah. in your brain right. over the six to seven years of getting tenure you're or right. whatever <laughs> leads to you not knowing how to play with other people. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I spent six years focusing on me and my work, just to then later say, "Oh, now I got to help other people do work with other people." I don't know how to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, I think it it has to be that whatever kinds of collaborative meetings or seminars are put together has to be genuinely engaging intellectually for the participants. They really have to feel that somehow they're getting something by going and talking to these people. And I found over the years that sometimes it really does lead to very specific um, projects, like an article or, a, or some kind of a collaborative uh, grant that, that they then publish their own material from. Uh, but but sometimes it's just the intellectual conversations that gets people excited about then applying it in their own work to their own individual products. So I, I don't think it always has to be a very visible collaborative joint result, uh, but it can be that spark that you know kind of gets you going. Because sometimes when you're working in isolation and then teaching your course, at least I think a lot of people find that you you miss that 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 real excitement of, of a seminar of just a quick moving conversation that I think this is you, really is, is really important and um, there are very simple institutional ways to do it so some universities require for a PhD defense committee that you have somebody outside the department Right, yes. have to have an external member of the committee uh -huh. that just builds it in those conversations from the get go, and it's all it takes is just a rule, mm -hmm. right, as opposed to any money. Yes, um, yes. And if you have uh, core curricula, you draw the faculty from across departments and have them meet every so often, and they're talking. And yes, that you have to provide the donuts, but it's not a big, it's not a big cost, either, right? And those are where a lot of really interesting exchanges happen. But on the other hand, when we think about the model of collaborative scholarship, how many of us have found mm -hmm. published works that are explicitly collaborative in that way really valuable? Mm -hmm. There are some, mm -hmm. but not that many. Mm -hmm. And so in my view, the focus, again, really probably ought to be on fostering those conversations in the institutionally arranged ways rather than saying, look, we need people to publish together. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think you'll find that in places like College of Education, School of <laughs> Business, that's where you know multi-author actual collaborative methodologies get applied, executed, and delivered. But in humanities and social sciences, I guess psychology, sociology, you'll have that, anthropology a bit. But once you move over to history, religious studies, philosophy, that's... <laughs> that's not baked into the culture or the structure of most institutions and it's, disciplines. It's funny because I know when I was in grad school, interdisciplinarity was like the thing everyone was like, the reason to come to Emory is that you'll be, it's interdisciplinary. And I think a lot of graduate programs um, 
tout that. <clears throat> but once you graduate, we stop. <laughs> like, like, like I would be in seminars with complet history, mm-hmm. American studies folks. You know, I was in a seminar on theories of myth, and half the half the class were complet people who were bringing all this stuff that I had never heard of, mm-hmm. um, and it was awesome. But then you leave and you go off, and you hopefully get a job, and then you don't talk to any people in complet ever again. Uh, uh, so it's just interesting how we don't we value that in some parts of our of our you know world, but not others. So it's interesting because it sounds like your your school and university has been sort of on the front edge of a lot of the high, larger higher ed changes mm-hmm. that have been coming through. But you also have a graduate program. How does how has these or what are these? Uh, sort of big structural changes that you've observed at the university and overall change the way you think about graduate education, preparing PhD students to walk into the world that you're now the cutting edge of? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, the graduate students, uh, before their faculty, for the most part, uh, got into the online instruction. And that was because that was where it was available. Uh, there was there were opportunities, and, and many of them are fearless when it comes to saying, yes, I can teach this. Yes, I, you know, I can do that. They're just, I mean, I admire uh, their ability to say, yes, I'm, and they'll develop a course in something that, that um, um, and, and so they, they became adept, and maybe they just have greater facility with technological uh, tools and things like that, or, or, or less hesitation to learn these kinds of things, but um, they now are, um, oftentimes will teach uh, their own online course. Uh, religious studies, when we were a department, uh, we had graduate students assisting faculty in courses. We really kept the model of graduate assistance. When we moved into the school, within the space of two to three years, that changed uh, because there was a sense among the, by the director that it had to be parody. And history for years had its entering doctoral students teach sections of their intro to history, whatever that intro to Western Civ is. And so it was thought that, well, is it fair that doctoral students in the same school, you know, some are assisting in a course and another is teaching his or her own course. And so over time, that's meant that we've lost our assistantships and they've now become, for the most part, they, um, maybe not the first year, but they they do their own course. Has it changed anything about just the, the sort of training or cur- curriculum or any sort of structural changes in your graduate program uh, or beyond just that change in teaching? Well, you know, when we developed the doctoral program, we instituted a teaching world religions course that was designed that everybody who got a degree would be able to enter a department and teach that course, uh, you know, at a 100 level. And I think the instructor for that, uh, it's, it's varied, but um, it tries to also orient students to this kind of changing type of instruction when they're teaching this pedagogy course. So trying to get students to be uh, adept at claiming they, and and they genuinely do have experience in different kinds of of, um, uh, instruction. 
and and I think it's great the pu- the public humanities orientation that your master's program is incorporating inventing In, well inventing no <laughs> as we I, go I, out. I think in fact this is something that I I mused over at one point with the doctoral um, program whether it would have been it would be good to you know have that kind of a course where students really focus on sort of public issues in contemporary life and they that's sort of the topic and then they cultivate the ability to address some of these issues in a more public fashion but I, I, I will be interested to see you know if it's successful me too yeah no, <laughs> but this is the way it's going I mean even even faculty now I I just have this sense that Faculty have to have, uh, have to, maybe it's not the right way to put it, but will have their own kind of platform that they become almost a brand in themselves or a kind of a, a presence online and that they, they have a more public dimension, okay? That, I don't think faculty members who are uh, towards the end of their careers See, it, it's such a it's such a cultural shift, uh, a shift in the ethos and sensibilities of what you do. But I think among um, some, it's really going to become much more. Are we better or worse off for it? I it's I actually I actually think it's better. I really do. I think I think there had been far too um, strong and insular uh, character. To, to academics for a long time. And I think this is a really good way to, to have a broader impact publicly. So I think it's a positive thing. And we are uh, very thankful for Linnell Katie for spending that time with our faculty and for that excellent conversation. And now for our last segment of the episode, we have uh, a section of Dr. Katie's uh, lecture, her Aronov lecture, uh, and it was titled Spirituality, Religion, and Science in a Post-Secular Age. And what I chose to pull out uh, for our listening audience was a section where Dr. Katie talks about a writer and speaker named Gary Zukov, who you may have heard, as she says, uh, early in this section, on Oprah, one of Oprah's sole Sunday speakers. Um, but she talks about how Zukov uses the language of physics and the language of spirituality, and it's just a really interesting uh, look at modern uh, American religion and where it's headed in, in, in some interesting ways. two early popular and influential figures in this cultural space. Oprah Winfrey credits Zukov with her introducing spirituality and its talk of energy frequencies and intentions into the mainstream of American culture. She says that his book, The Seed of the Soul, changed the way I see myself and it changed the way I practice my relationships, personal and business. Um, She claims next to the Bible, it is the most important book in her life. The poet and memoirist Maya Angelou confesses not only to reading Zukov's book 10 times, 
but to keeping a copy of it covered in plastic on her kitchen table. So Zukov uh, and his multiple workshops, his best-selling books, and his over several dozen appearances on the Opera Show have secured his reputation within popular culture uh, over the past quarter century. If his 1989 book launched his sort of um, career as a spiritual guru, um, it was an earlier book published in 1979 uh, that really captures how much um, um, the, the spiritual but not religious movement tapped into um, the new physics um, uh, in its development. He published a book called The Dancing Wooly Masters, uh, which is an overview of the new physics, and it eventually um, sold over a million copies and was translated into multiple languages and editions. And that came on the heels of Capra's even more successful and critically acclaimed The Tao of Physics, which was published a few years earlier, and it's really become, in some respects, an iconic book um, that is still in print with over, over 40 editions uh, worldwide. Now, the self-taught Zukov, well, he wasn't self-taught, he went to Harvard, uh, but he did not have a graduate degree in physics. Um, but in Copper, who was a trained physicist with a doctorate from the University of Vienna, they were both members of a social network of, of largely unemployed or underemployed university-trained physicists in Northern California in the 60s and 70s. This network belonged to the countercultural movement that was plumbing the stranger features and implications of quantum physics um, that was spearheaded by some of the early 20th century giants in this area, such as Einstein, Heisenberg, and Schrodinger. And their interests were very eclectic, exotic, um, they ranged from, uh, you know, paranormal experiences to quantum physics, um, Eastern religion, um, alternative consciousness um, from the mystical to the psychedelic. And as D David Kayser tells the story, this loosely affiliated network existed on the margins of the university-based discipline of physics, which had since the Second World War focused mostly on gadgetry. Uh, essentially on a special flavor of research uh, and development that was conducted side by side with engineers and military planners, as, as he explains. But missing from this orientation in physics was engagement with the broader philosophical questions that had troubled the earliest 20th century uh, figures in this area, given the profound challenges to our common sense view of reality. And Copper and Zukov traveled in the same circle as these marginalized physicists uh, and did a great deal to push uh, the discussion about these big metaphysical questions uh, and, and helping to refocus mainstream physics on some of these questions, but as much advancing these hybrid cultural formations that have been clicking along uh, on the margins of elite culture. Now, evident in their book titles, they were really eager to illuminate the parallels between quantum physics and Eastern mystical traditions. They argue that the alignment between science and spirituality is made possible by quantum physics' revolutionary overthrow of the Cartesian-Newtonian model that has dominated science and modernist thinking in the modern period. Now, this claim permeates this body of literature. Um, sometimes in a more sophisticated fashion, uh, such as copper, and sometimes not quite so sophisticated as with Zukov. But it goes something like this. 
The modernist paradigm in both its dualist and physical monist versions construes material, material reality as existing outside the self, operating according to laws of nature that are in principle regular and predictable. Truth is a function of the human rationally comprehending the law-like operations uh, of processes in the physical world, the thoroughly disenchanted real world, the objective world out there outside the self, giving rise to the metaphor of the great machine. Quantum physics upends this mechanistic deterministic model with the startling discovery that it doesn't apply to the subatomic level. And a series of experience in the last century reveal a fundamental indeterminacy at the subatomic, at the smallest level. And it's better understood uh, in terms of possibilities or tendencies than independent objects that, whose interactions can, in principle, be determined. Actualization uh, can only be approached in terms of statistical probability and most consequentially is somehow related to the act of observation. In the striking words of one of these physicists, gone is the observer of classical theory, the person who stands safely behind the thick glass wall and watches what goes on without taking part, unquote. Within the new paradigm, um, the observer is a participant with consciousness somehow co-constructing reality itself. Quantum physics seems to point to a deeper dimension that reveals a relational whole rather than an aggregate, aggregate of parts that are externally and only locally re related. Experiments increasingly show that the parts are intimately related and counterintuitively, very counterintuitively, that instantaneous communication and non-local causality uh, actually exist. The implication is that our three-dimensional space-time world does not exhaust reality, but is in some sense embedded in and refracting another dimension or domain understood as mind or consciousness. Now, the striking similarities um, between this idea uh, and perennial claims to mystical experience across multiple traditions give rise uh, to the conviction of parallels and harmony between quantum physics and spirituality. Now, the new physics, um, to see how I'm doing here. the new physics, uh, as they underscore, exposes the limits of science, and I think this is an important point. Uh, it repeatedly leads to results that contradict our everyday understanding of reality. Um, and there was a recognition uh, among the earliest scientists that physics was not really dealing with reality as such, but with symbolic mathematical representations of it. Uh, uh, it does not and cannot capture reality in its immediacy, fullness, or wholeness. In this respect, the new physics de dethrones science as the final or complete arbiter of what is true and real. In so doing, it creates room for mystical experience understood as an alternate source of insight into reality. It leaves open the possibility that science can, um, that, that reality is more than science can measure, as mystics have long claimed, and uh, renowned physicist 
Eddington acknowledged in his quip that religion first became possible for a reasonable man about the year 1927. Science has always dealt with the shadowy world of symbols, uh, but he confesses we thought we were dealing with the world itself. So in this respect, quantum physics limits the territorial expansive moves, uh, epistemological and ontological, uh, of modernist thinking and science alike. Now, one point I think is very important to understand is that although the language of mysticism uh, suggests a common core experience, the way these figures render that experience, interpret it, um, differs significantly. For Zukov, quantum physics upends a dispiriting and disenchanting materialism making way for a recognition of human agency and participation in the construction of reality. Talk of the possibility that we shape our own reality morphs into the affirmation that not only do we influence our reality, but in some degree we actually create it. Then more dramatically still, he claims the cogs in the machine have become the creators of the universe. This gives you just some sense of the uh, enthusiastic, excuse me, enthusiastic, can't even say that, enthusiastic uh, affirmation of what human agency and creativity uh, and human potential means in this interpretation. Um, but it clearly exalts um, the power of expanded human consciousness and its potential uh, to usher in a new human species with new capacities and capabilities. And it's through conscious choice of intention, attention, uh, and action that individuals expand and direct consciousness to construct reality. And this capability is a function, he argues, of recognizing that we are not alone, that our higher selves can access a consciousness that is deeper and wider than everyday ego-driven consciousness. It is the font of endless possibilities. Now, this is, um, this is really, he's spiritualized, spiritualizing um, the idea of evolution, and it echoes ideas that have been circulating for at least a century, but it's found new vigor uh, with quantum physics, uh, and the genre of spirituality, in a sense, popularizes this more broadly within the culture as a whole. Now, I would say, just parenthetically, so fixated is Zukov in um, underscoring the individual's power and responsibility to create reality that he gives no attention, for the most part, to the biological, social, and political factors that condition and constrain human lives. These are essentially erased. The prime directive is always to focus on how you construct reality, and if there's anything negative entering into your horizon, uh, you are to ignore that or interpret it as somehow a learning experience that will enable you to uh, construct uh, your reality in a more positive, flourishing vein. Um, now, for many, despite the theoretical uh, and moral limitations of that position, um, this is uh, overshadowed by what is felt to be a very empowering message that individuals do have agency and do have the ability to, in a sense, transform their own reality. Thanks again 
to Professor Linnell Cady from Arizona State University for an excellent Aronov lecture. Thank you to Elijah Siegler for an excellent day lecture. It was a great spring semester, and it was just wonderful to have guests on campus and guests in the department. We learned so much from both of them. Study Religion is a production of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. For more information on our department, go to www.religion.ua.edu. Or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash R-E-L at U-A. If you've got a comment or a question or ideas for this podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at religiousstudies@ua.edu. Or you can send us a tweet. We are at Study Religion. We're also on Instagram with awesome pictures of our beautiful historic Manly Hall and the wonderful squirrels and all sorts of things going on in the department at Study Religion on Instagram. If you've enjoyed this show, if you want to support our department, if you want more people to listen to this awesome podcast, do us a huge favor. Go to iTunes, leave us a comment. Leave us a rating that really helps other people find the show. So Study Religion is, a, is produced by me, Mike Altman, with help from our wonderful production assistant, Sierra Lawson. This credit music is from Disparition. More information about them at disparition.info. We'll talk to you soon. Roll Tide. I thought you were very stoic the other day. I had no idea you were injured until almost this We eventually will have an honors day with one faculty member not freshly injured. It's been two in a row now. <laughs>